All right, let's begin our conversation this morning as we press on in our study of sanctification, trying to understand the hope of being able to change to become more and more like Christ. Uh, Glad you could make it this morning. I don't know. Does everybody have power now? I heard some didn't get it till at least last night around the area, so uh, quite the storm coming through. Thankful everybody's well. Any, any good word from you all? Does anybody have anything they need to share or would like to share? Testimony? Something you've read, been encouraged by? Come with those things. Uh, not a lot of opportunities to dive into those things publicly, but happy to let you speak if you have something. Roy? This is, this is just an interesting thing to me. Not strictly spiritual, but, but the, the impact that this movie has had that reveals this child sex trafficking, this could actually be an inflection point for our whole culture because uh, we, uh, Mexico is the largest provider of child sexual stuff in America is the largest consumer of it and what's missing in between is some sort of a screening. So this may actually be a political point as well as a spiritual because I think we've been just kind of oblivious to the, the rock, the terrible rock that most of us would say, oh that is awful, but it's flourishing here and that having the scab ripped off of it and be visible may be a political and a religious inflection point for our country. It's worth praying that way. Certainly, yes, we can pray for uh, much victory in that battle. Um, probably the most pushback I'm seeing against the movie is the thought that the vast majority of people that have seen it recognize they're not going to be racing up rivers in South America to rescue children. Um, And so what are we supposed to do exactly? Um, And so I think you'll probably be seeing more of a response that helps us even with awareness in our own suburbs and stuff, to be able to identify or maybe recognize some kind of problems that are happening, you know, right under our nose, so to speak. Um, But certainly the starting place is to pray uh, and to be surrendered to whatever God would have us to do. The the light that we shine, uh, the gospel light, can certainly affect all kinds of uh, social causes, causes for justice and mercy, and so I think we should be ready, uh, especially if we're going to indulge in a study of the book of Acts that thinks of taking the good news everywhere, then let's not be limited in in thinking of what everywhere might mean for us. Uh, So that's good. If you've seen that, you can engage Roy with some of those conversations and, uh, yeah, just try to think through our next steps there. All right, You Can Change. It's a book by Tim Chester, uh, really addressing sanctification, Uh, a big word that simply means uh, God is asking you to cooperate with the Holy Spirit, and God's doing and your cooperation are going to produce what we call spiritual maturity, spiritual growth, Uh, You'll be changed into the image of Christ, meaning he's the standard, and we're getting closer and closer to being like him. And all the commands of the New Testament are designed uh, to show us 
the image of Christ, and here's what it would look like practically with regards to your anger. Put that off and put this on with regards to covetousness. Don't do that. Instead, be this. And it's, it's telling us, no, your, your self, your sinful self is not the standard. Christ is, and you need to be changing to become more and more like him. The good news is this is the promise of God, that he will do this. Romans 8 tells us that. Philippians 1, uh, Paul says he's confident in that promise, that God who began that work, and we've studied that now in Acts, when God blinds him there on the Damascus Road and begins that change process, he says that process is going to continue until the day of Jesus Christ. Uh, And on that day, uh, the last of Romans 8's promise will be fulfilled and we will be glorified And it's no longer a sanctification process, but that process will reach its conclusion. Uh, And at that time, in Jude, it says, we will be presented faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. So there's great hope in the study of change. Uh, Our task, then, is to recognize God's promises to do this And yet in this sanctification, remember, he calls us to an obedience, to a cooperation, to a a gazing on him and a worship that that will facilitate that change. God's going to do it, but our yielding uh, becomes essential. Uh, And so, so many of the commands are, you do this. And yet we know God's the one doing it. Um, That's the source of the power. That's the, the potential for change, but it it does mandate a choice, uh, a choice of love. Uh, and we can see that all through the New Testament. So let's consider this morning yet another kind of question that if we're studying sanctification, it's if we're looking at it from all these different angles and just trying to think it through so that something each week might take root in our minds and we'll think a little bit more intentionally about change. We've asked the question, what do you want to change? And maybe even this past week, after some real sinful blunders, we're thinking, oh, I wish I could get victory over, and we name the sin. Um, But in asking that question, remember, what do we want to change? It's not just, you know, picking the, the leaves off the weed above the ground. We need to remember God's desires to get all the way down to the root, Um, And so God's agenda for our change is to become like Christ, not just to reign in my anger. All right, so what do you want to change? Is your your plan for change as, as deep as God's is? The second chapter was why do you want to change? Is it to achieve a standing with God or with others? Or is it acting on our standing that's already ours in Christ. Uh, One of those feels like bondage, always measuring up to somebody's standard, which may move. You may think you please someone and and you realize their demand's higher. The other is, is, is free. It's no less demanding in the sense of be holy, but it's freeing in that I have a standing with God. I'm secure in Christ and I act on that position to do what is right. So why do you want to change? Be careful of change that is prompted by embarrassment, by, uh, by some kind of pride of wanting to look a certain way. Uh, that, that won't be lasting change. Uh, 
We began studying the matter of uh, how to change last week. And really, we're, we're starting to narrow it down to the heart issue. God has to change the heart. Uh, and we want to build on that this week by, in a sense, talking about what, but a little more specifically with a when question. And the question is this, as the author presents it, when do you struggle? When do you struggle? Questions like, think about this last week or even this morning or maybe the recent weeks of a pattern of besetting sin. What makes you feel angry? Were you angry this past week at something? What made you feel that anger as you watched the news or as you drove the streets around town, uh, as you worked with coworkers at the office? What, what made you feel angry or depressed? What, what brought up feelings of resentment towards somebody? Or even just the word frustration. We use that in a sense as kind of a neutral concept, sometimes an amoral uh, feeling. But what, what is that frustration? What caused that? You could ask the question, when do you feel more susceptible to temptation? What sets you off? Or maybe you're not that kind of person. We'd ask what clams you up or wears you down or you might say stresses you out. These are all questions that are trying to get us to find a, a focus on this context of when we struggle. Not as an end to itself. We're going to see that's, that's really a window uh, into better understanding change. But it's not a bad idea to start thinking about, okay, where were the problem areas of the past week? When did I yield to temptation? When did I, when did I feel very spiritually weak uh, in my resolve against temptation? The author addresses two kinds of struggle in one sentence. He says, we are messed up people living in a messed up world. But what we're going to find, if you were to read this chapter, is that he's really addressing both of those spheres. At first, he begins the chapter with this heading, God cares about our struggles. God cares about our struggles. But having begun the chapter by asking, when do you struggle, and asking questions that dealt with sin issues, when are you angry, when are you bitter? When are you frustrated? Um, In my mind, I was thinking, wait a minute, we're going to have to define what he means by God cares about our struggles. Because in this opening paragraph, he goes on to say God sees our struggles. God remembers that we struggle. God allows our struggles. Jesus experienced our struggles. But he was using this word struggles after an introduction that was about struggling sinfully and needing to change. So I was curious, like, okay, this seems to be a little foggy. But as he went on, he was, he was kind of morphing this definition of struggle to first explain that as messed up people, we're living in a messed up world. And he was saying the messiness of the world causes circumstances that are trying, that press on us, that weigh on us. 
So yes, the messed up world is a factor in our spiritual struggle, but then he's going to get on and really drive home the point that the real heart of the problem is the heart, that we are messed up people living in a messed up world. So his first paragraph here about God caring about our struggles, I think would have been better set up if he said, here I'm talking about the messed up world that squeezes you. Remember our illustration of the tea bag last week. You drop the tea bag in the hot water and that brings out what's in the tea bag. Well, the messed up world is the hot water. And when you get into that hot water, what's on the inside of you comes out. And so we're starting by examining that outside struggle, living in the messed up world, because then it does make sense to say God sees our struggles. He remembers our frame. He knows we are nothing more than dust. He, he knows ours isn't a strength of ourselves that, that is really able to deal with everything we're going to face in the world. It's also fair to say God allows our struggles if we're not talking about sin struggle and we're talking about dealing with the pressures of life and the world, then yes, God allows our struggles. And Je Jesus did experience our struggles. I think Isaiah 43 makes this clear. Though we might be familiar with the text, it does drive home the reality of dealing with a lot of hardships in this life. The prophet says, giving the words of the Lord to his people, and he who formed you, O Israel, says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, nor shall the flames scorch you. So the reality is we will live in troubled circumstances. But the hope of change is we don't have to have troubled hearts. The troubled circumstances are the reality. It's the groaning, Romans 8 calls it, of living in a sin-cursed world. And in addition to that, a lot of that groaning may be because if this world hated Jesus, it's going to hate you as well. And now we're adding the Acts theme of opposition and persecution and a culture that not only disagrees, but maybe is growing to disdain your faith. So it will be a struggle to live in the world. But how would you explain a statement like this? God does something about our struggles. So the struggle of living in a sin-cursed world, how would you explain with Scripture that thesis we're putting out there? God does something about our struggles. If you were asked to prove that, what would, what would come to your mind? Might be an idea. We'll try to find a verse for it. But what do you think, Gary? Well, I was just sitting there thinking about, uh, I think it's Romans 10, 13, you know, where it says, uh, you will, I mean, no temptation has overcome us except just common man. God is faithful. God allow us to be tempted. You know, we are able. Also, make a way of escape, so he gives us a way in things of temptation. Now, I don't know struggles. Okay. 
So 1 Corinthians. Uh, I think the reference is right. Yep. God will make a way of escape in that time of temptation. All right, what else? God does something about our struggles. Is that true? And how do we support that with some kind of Bible? I kind of bristle at this because we stop short of the absolute sovereignty of God. God planned my struggles. Why would we have to pray, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil, if sometimes God didn't lead us where we will be tempted in his sovereign choice? It also says he works all things according to the counsel of his own will. So some of these things that we run into are for the purpose of showing us what's within and showing us the sufficiency of Christ that we have to cling to. Oh, absolutely. I think you're, you're right. There is a, the sovereignty of God. Um, and I don't know that's, if that's in any way opposite of saying God does something about it. But in using colloquial language like that, uh, we want to know, okay, what does that actually mean biblically? Um, and so we may have renamed it as God's sovereignty. Um, maybe, a, maybe a more pointed question is, what is God doing in our struggles? So maybe there's just, there is no real discussion about, is God doing something in our struggles or about them? Um, so what is he doing? Well, Romans 8, 28, works all things according to Kevin, and that's not his job. You know, he works all things to the good for those who love him, because God predestined us to be conformed to the image of Christ. So this falling flat on our faces and crying out for strength and then crying out for strength and overcoming is a portion of becoming Christ-like. Yes. Um, again, we're, we're probably thinking in two categories of struggle. If by struggle we mean laying aside the sin which so easily besets us, then I think we'd have to be a little more articulate on, okay, God wanted us to sin because it helps us trust him more. And then we're wandering right into the argument in Romans 6, you know, should we just sin then so that grace may abound in our getting to know God better and becoming better? And, and no, that's not what God wants. If we're talking the circumstances of life and the hardships and the trials, then yes, we, we pretty quickly jump into that discussion of God is working all of this for good. Can God work sin for good? Yes. In Romans 8.28, we tend to think, based on the context there of what God's doing and shaping us to become like Christ, that this is all what we would call positive shaping to be like Christ. Um, and, and the negative side is, is where the danger is, because we don't want to say God authored the sin in our lives in order to make us more like Christ. Um, so we do have to be careful in this word struggle. It's just, it's a... It's a word that is used in a lot of different ways. Um, to Roy's point, if we're trying to take the outward struggles, living in a sin-cursed world and all those hardships, um, then we can readily jump on 
the sovereignty of God who not only makes something good come out of those things as if he was salvaging something that surprised him, but even more so, he is actively using all of that struggle and hardship and trial to very intentionally shape us into the image of Christ. Um, And this is why Joseph uh, in the Old Testament, who is sold into slavery, and he gets to Potiphar's house, and it looks like that's going to work out okay, and that ends disastrously, and he's thrown in prison. And then after years there, he interprets dreams, and that looks like it'll be a way out, and then he's forgotten about, and more years pass, and decades of his life seem to just be wasted. And then in a moment when sweet revenge could be his, he, he totally uh, surprises his family who are petrified of his revenge um, and his reasoning, his faith foundation is that God meant those evil actions of betrayal, selling him into slavery, lying about him, forgetting about him. God used those sinful actions to accomplish his perfect plan in putting Joseph right where he needed to be for a grander scheme of God, which was to save many people. And frankly, to continue his plan of redemption through the line of Abraham. Um, So God is at work, yes, um, but it's design. He works all things according to the counsel of his will, his plan, plan A, never a plan B. Um, So when we say God's doing something about the struggles we have with trials and hardships in the world, yes, we go to Romans 8, 28. Um, so there's a lot to think on there, but what else, what else do we have? Well, in the Gospel of John, chapter 16, the time of the disciples before the trial, in verse 1628, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. So Christ is talking about his ministry. And then a few verses later, it says, these things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. So it's knowing who God is and his sovereignty, that's you know, talking about his sovereignty. And then our comfort by his sovereignty in, in our situations, because he has overcome the world. So John 16 Uh, Jesus talking with his disciples, probably between the upper room and the Garden of Gethsemane, and unfolding to them the reality of trials and tribulation in the world. And his words are that they can have peace, be of good cheer. Uh, I have overcome the world so that even though the world is in chaos, your heart can be quiet. Uh, You can have that rest. Yes. James chapter 4, what causes quarrels and what causes fights? Is it not this that your passions are all within yourself? So there's uh, why we struggle because of what's inside us. Right, so James 4 is going to remind us that the struggle and the conflict we feel is conflict that comes with, from within. Uh, building on chapter 1, we, we can be drawn away by our own lust and enticed into sin 
and we feel that pull, we feel that struggle, uh, and it echoes again in James 4. And again, that moves us kind of back to that, that struggle against sin itself in our lives. Um, what, what do we know about all struggle, ultimately? What, what does the Bible tell us about the groaning in this sin-cursed world and the struggle with sin? What is God going to do about all of that ultimately? Right. Yeah, you read Revelation 21 and 22 and you realize all of that goes away. In the resurrection, uh, the final day, we, we, we shed even the corruptible bodies that we have for resurrected bodies. Um, all things are made new, a new heaven and a new earth. All tears are wiped away. When you read Revelation, it's really clear. He's, he's telling John, write these things for they are faithful and true. And then he unfolds this glorious hope that the struggle is over. The victory culminates and the last enemy is defeated or judged ultimately, that being death, and we enjoy the presence of God forever. So in a sense, there's two great things God is doing. Whatever the struggle now is, God is at work in that by his grace. And ultimately, whatever that struggle is, be it outward or inward, those struggles cease when God completes his plan of redemption, as Romans 8 calls it. We're groaning. We're awaiting the fullness of our redemption. Not that we're not saved now. It's just we don't have all the full payment of it. We have the security that's in Christ. We have our standing of justification. We have this grace that is sufficient even when our strength is small. Uh, we have all these blessings now, so much so that Ephesians says we're, we're already seated with Christ in heavenly places. It's a done deal. But you know that your workplace doesn't feel like you're sitting in heaven with no concerns. It's a struggle still. We're awaiting the full payment of what God has promised us. For now, we have that down payment of the Holy Spirit, which brings all that that strength and ability to do what God says now, but eventually the, the struggles of any kind come to an end and we know only the victory. So these struggles, remembering that there's two, inward and outward. We are messed up people, not like we were. We're, we're saints now, but by messed up, we're saying we still blow it. We still sin. Um, and that struggle is actually still revealing hearts that need the promise of Philippians 1.6 that God will continue his work of sanctification. We don't need Philippians 1.6 if we're perfect, right? So we don't need some kind of Wesleyan perfectionism that eventually we can be good enough and we just won't sin anymore in this life. That's just not the case. Show us that person. And we'll show you how wrong you really are. Um, that is not what the Bible says will be our end. Somehow in our Christian experience, we reach some kind of sinless perfection. Um, we don't need to know that anecdotally. We know it because God said his work will continue in us until the day of Jesus Christ. So why do we do the sinful things that we do? It's because those outer circumstances squeeze us 
and it shows the inner condition of our hearts. Um, we, we, can, we can try to say that things built up and I was only, you know, short with the kids or cross with my wife because life was hard and it was a long week and there were all these pressures and there this, blah, 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 right? We've all done that. And it, it's just what we do to explain away the inward condition because that looks really bad. If we had to say, I told a lie because in my heart was this deceit, that just, we don't want to do that. We want to make it seem like we were helping that person or it wouldn't have been good if everyone knew everything. And we have all these explanations for why something happened (laughs) Um, rather than I did that. And that's because there's a struggle going on. We, we want to believe it was outer circumstances rather than an inward condition. I can remember the, the first summer I did some camp counseling out in the Rocky Mountains. We had to read this little booklet. I don't know. I don't think it was a Jay Adams thing, but a um, little booklet called Your Reactions Are Showing. Um, and it kind of explained how people, when they blow it, when they blow up or sin, they immediately want to start pinpointing everything that caused it uh, rather than just letting that reveal the heart and rejoice that now that weed can be pulled out too. Uh, why do we get angry and irritable? Or frankly, why, why are we happy and content sometimes? We, we need to start thinking about roots Because if you really thought about why you had such a feeling of contentment, maybe you would get a clear understanding that it it wasn't because you had some financial windfall or, or some huge unexpected blessing. It might just be a steady godliness that that brought a peace that passes understanding. There might be some satisfaction in just knowing you're trying to walk rightly before God even when the world is a bit chaos and your little world is a bit chaotic. Why does a husband struggle to love his wife? Why does a wife struggle to love or respect her husband? Why do children struggle to obey and honor their parents? Jesus' answer in the Gospels is it's because their heart is at war. I struggle to love my wife because I love myself so much. Jesus said, that's, that's the problem. There's that sinful selfishness that won't let you love another the way you should. Why do children struggle to obey their parents? They might have really good parents, but the reality is they want to be in charge. It's, it's the Garden of Eden all over again. Adam and Eve saying, I don't want God telling me I can't eat this tree. And every infant and toddler has has this down pat. They don't need to be five years old to learn it. They already know, I want to be in charge. And they try to dictate. And you've seen parents that are dictated by toddlers, right? Or you see dogs that take their owners for a walk in your neighborhood, right? And the person's walking along, then they get yanked a little farther and You're thinking, wait a minute, your language was to your dog, do you want to go for a walk? And the dog was like, sure, I'll take you for a walk. And the dog dictates. Uh, 
Our dog does the same thing. I, I was a horrible dog parent. Um, your dog's never supposed to tug on the leash, they tell you. And they, they say, don't ever buy a harness, one that goes over. They should learn that it should never be tight on their neck. Like, teach them. And I'm like, no, harness the thing up and hang on, right? No, we, we have to make sure that we remember it's our hearts that are trying to take over and dictate. And sometimes they do in a strong way, and it comes out, and we're like, oops, you weren't supposed to see that. Um, and we start semi-apologizing for something that happened rather than saying the reality is what was on the inside came out. Uh, Jesus says it's our heart that is the source of our behavior. What's the proverb that speaks to the importance of keeping our hearts? Do you remember how that goes? Yeah, out of the heart are the issues of life. In whatever translation you have, it's telling you to keep your heart or guard your heart. Why? Because out of the heart come the issues of life. And by that we mean your marriage will have trouble if you don't seek God for heart change. You'll not be the best parent or the best friend, best church member, uh, the best... Christian witness, if the heart isn't right, it starts there. Proverbs 27, 19 says it another way. As in water, face reflects face. So on calm water, it it kind of functions as a mirror. So a man's heart reveals the man. We addressed that last week, these apologies that begin with, well, that's not who I am. Well, no, when you look in the mirror, you see what, what you look like. And when you explode on somebody or you lose it and the sin comes out, it's just a mirror. It's just showing what's in the heart. And the sooner we embrace that, the sooner we can confess and forsake and find God's mercy. But God's mercy is never found for dealing with those sin habits if we think that the remedy is to to repair the facade, paint it over again, add some boards that got blown over in that angry rage, let's get the facade right so that people think I'm a good person. Rather than just letting them think you're a Christian who is going to sin, but because you're a Christian, you're going to be repenting and believing that Jesus is the answer for forgiveness. Our behavior comes from the heart. It's always the root. And so lasting change has to begin there. Don't just pick the yellow flower off the dandelion in your yard. Those things can grow. I I, want to set like the little time-lapse camera up. I don't know how fast dandelions can regrow, but it's quick. They're going to be back in a hurry. And if you've ever struggled with a besetting sin... You know how soon after you've said you're sorry, you can be doing it again. If we don't deal with the hard issue, it's going to keep producing the sinfulness. So what is the link then between circumstances and our behavior? How would you answer that? What is the link between circumstances and behavior? Now, I didn't say... Like, 
some kind of causal strength because we've already established circumstances can't make me be good or bad. That's from the heart. So what is the link between outward circumstance and the heart, our behavior? Uh, when you're talking, I was thinking about Paul David Tripp has an illustration that, speaking of the believer specifically, that says that, you know, if you think about sin outside of you or around you has no effect on the believer until it's partaken in. So sin is harmless, if you will, to the believer unless it's engaged in. Um, but he makes the point that he says the great problem is, is that our hearts are, if you want to call it this way, magnetized towards sin. So you just think about sin being outside of you, and yet it's harmless, but as we pass by it, we're drawn towards it. And his point was not, it's a broken illustration, but it's the point was that we need new desires, or to use Puritan language, that our affections need to be turned, that the battle is not behavior modification, it's actually it's what's within you that needs to be changed and renewed and like the poles of a magnet need to be flipped to have new desires, which is part of God's plan for sanctification. But to answer the question that I think that illustration kind of points to is that our desires are toward sin, so circumstances can bring that about, but our desires are um, apart from being renewed, are, we actually want that. So there's a conversation to be had about desire. If we're trying to answer the question, well, what about circumstances? How does, what's the link to my behavior? And somewhere in there, you would want to talk about desire because of James 1, telling us we can be drawn away. Paul was saying, um, one author described it as our, that the flesh being kind of magnetized towards sin. We're drawn to it. We're going to notice it. It's going to be there as, as an appeal, like it has value, offers pleasure, whatever it is. Uh, we're drawn to that. Not hopelessly. We can fight that battle and choose what is right. But to, to recognize in this conversation about circumstances and how it affects behavior, it's good to focus on our understanding of what the Bible teaches regarding desire, um, because desire in and of itself is, can be good or bad, right? That same word lust in James 1 that we tend to think of, oh, like sinfully wanting something uh, or wanting something sinful, that, that same word can be used elsewhere for strong desire in a good way. Um, and so desire uh, is, a, is a great conversation to have when talking about um, heart, and behavior. Remembering that our struggles and our temptations and the pressures of life cannot cause sin, we might say, and again, it's not a biblical word, so we can talk more, we could use the language of it may trigger or give opportunity for sin. Opportunity is a little bit more of a biblical word. Um, And so to be thinking that circumstances do have some kind of an effect. Think of it, the, you know, I, I'm short with my wife and I want to say it's because it was a really long week. Well, what if you can look at it and say, that's the worst week I've ever seen anybody have. 
What if you can agree that it really was this exhausting, trying week? What does that mean for our behavior? Like, what is the link there? And so the author is just trying to get us to recognize, okay, before we just say, well, you can't say you had a hard week and chose to sin, his point is, yes, you can't say you sinned because of that, but let's at least recognize what's going on in somebody's life um, when they sinned. Remember, that, that was the original question, when do you struggle? And so you might want to think this through this week, like, not as an excuse, but as some kind of identification of, of how the spiritual warfare heightens and what's going on. What's going on when my boss doesn't recognize the work I've done and I drive home fuming mad? Or out there on the interstate driving across the country on vacation and, and you know, somebody cuts in front of you and, or they come racing up the long line of traffic that stalled, you know, and, and they cut in at the last minute. And why does that make you mad? Or young people might say, my parents don't understand me. Maybe old people say that too, of old parents. I don't know. Why does that bother them? What's going on there? A spouse could say, well, my spouse never, never understands what I'm going through. We have all these circumstances that are really difficult. So what's going on there? If we know those things can't make me sin, Jesus said it comes from the heart. But it feels like at times my circumstances are are just set up perfectly for the opportunity for me to step into the trap of sin. Genesis 39, Joseph is in Potiphar's house, and he keeps saying no to Potiphar's wife, though she tempts him again and again. And then the text says, this day came when there was nobody else in the house. And it labors to tell us that before, there's kind of always this excuse of looking around and, well, there's all these people here. But then on that day, it was like the perfect setup that would make the perfect opportunity to sin and to think you were getting away with it, to think it could be indulged in. But it brings to mind, as Joseph answers the temptation that even seems so set up, he says, how could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? See, I think when we try to figure out a link to circumstance, the really bad week that made me lose it with my wife, And then I'm told, well, no, it comes from the heart. And you're still trying to process through this and think, but I I was exhausted, I was tired, I was cranky already. You know, what does that mean spiritually? And I think what it means is, for most of us that have been Christians for a while, we tend to just coast without having, as Paul said, any real affection or desire for God being fanned daily by time in the word and time with God. So we're kind of coasting in our goodness. And in those moments where we think the week was really hard or my parents are so inconsistent and they said this and I lost it and in that moment and had a bad attitude towards mom or dad, we have all these scenarios that we want to say it was everything was really hard right then. 
And Jesus would say, it comes from the heart. And in that moment, it doesn't seem like you were trusting. It doesn't seem like you were treasuring. You weren't trusting that God is in control of parents that might be inconsistent. You're not trusting that God is in control of a spouse who may not appreciate you. You're not trusting that God's in control of the workplace and he knows you work for an unreasonable boss. God is in control. You're not trusting him and you're not treasuring him. You're not believing he's good in putting you in those situations. And because he's not good and hasn't worked it out, I'm going to work it out with the tools that I have, which are generally force, control, anger, because that seems to work on people. And it's not so much that I had a really hard week. It's more as though, you know, I'm tired of pretending, and I'm just going to let it fly now. And sometimes, if we're honest, we say things like that. Well, I'm just not going to try. I'm not going to keep it in because this needs to stop. And we kind of just feel this permission to do what we're going to do. You talk to people that struggle with drugs or pornography or these strong desires, and a lot of times they deserve it. They think they, they, life is so hard, I deserve a break, and this is how I'll pursue it. But it's really just an, an excuse to feed that desire rather than to work hard at other desires. Maybe even this week, you, you can just analyze what's going on in the heart the next time you feel angry or fearful or the impulse to please others, whatever it is, think, what, what's going on? What am I thinking? What do I want in this moment? Because maybe it's something I want, or maybe it's a threat that something I want could be taken away or was taken away. This is an, a parenting scenario. The child feels like their freedom or, or their rising kind of maturity is being threatened or taken away by mom and dad, and so they get angry. Why do I have to be home at 11? What In their minds, they saw something, they wanted to have fun with their friends, it looked good, and that was being taken away, and so the anger comes out. And we're good at seeing it with toddlers. You know, they know there's cake up on the table, and you're trying to feed them carrots and vegetables, and, you know, they don't want that. They want the good stuff, and they make it really clear. Somehow we complicate it as adults and we scratch our heads and think, I don't know, I think it was a long week and blah, blah, blah. And it's, wait a minute, you wanted something. Get better at diagnosing yourself uh, or humble yourself and, and say, honey, I don't know why I'm so angry right now, I, 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 but something's going on in my heart. And le- at least put it out there and speak something that's true rather than grabbing up the tired excuses the devil keeps handing us to justify our sin and thus stall out any hope of change. It's one thing to tell a runner, you know, you'd probably run a little faster if you weren't wearing your street clothes, you know, and your dress shoes. Granted, you know, you might wear a little more than some of them wear these days in a track meet. But the idea is, you know, Tell them a couple of times here. Coach them how to, how, how to run without encumbrance. But if they're going to keep insisting on picking up weight and trying to run, we got to start asking, like, are they really committed to running the race? 
And in our Christian lives, if we're going to keep grabbing up the excuses of it was a long week or, you know, my kids were really bad and that's why I lost it, we're never going to change. We have to address our hearts. And so I, I think the, the challenge for us is really to, to think about how to counsel ourselves with truth. And some of that truth is, is getting to the root of the problem. Asking yourself, why am I angry? Why, am I, why do I feel so stressed right now? What, what, what is the fear? What, what am I thinking is going to go wrong? Start asking yourselves questions to understand those feelings that so often dictate how we live. And again, like I said, you can, you can diagnose the good feelings too. Why do I feel so satisfied right now? Why the, why the calm? Why the peace? Because these things will reveal both the good and the bad in your heart. Life may be very chaotic and you're not bothered at all and it might be wise to say, why is that? And it's intentionally taking note of God's work of grace in your life. The author kind of concludes his chapter here on When do we struggle? By saying we sin because we're not trusting God, and he used the word not worshiping God. If you want to keep them similar, you can say we sin when we're not trusting God and when we're not treasuring him. And and really just go back to Genesis and read Genesis 2 and 3 and see how Adam and Eve don't value who God is and what they have from God and his good gifts. Um, and then they don't trust him. It only took one sentence from a stranger, the serpent. Has God really said, is he holding back that tree? And that thought took root, like God is keeping something from me. We sin because we don't trust God and because we don't treasure him. We don't, Trust him, the author says, sin happens when we don't trust God above everything else. Or to put it another way, in the negative sense, sin happens when we believe lies instead of God's truth. God has said something in his word. Do we believe it? The devil will say things this week, and deceitfully so. Will we believe that? We sin when we do not trust what God has said. In that category of treasuring or worship, the author says sin happens when we don't desire God above all else. Jesus' command, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Sin happens when we worship idols instead of worshiping God. Do we think of ourselves as idolaters? The funny thing is, the further back you go in church history, the more you find church, you know, theologians and those that we still read talking about idolatry. We, we just don't, we, we, we leave that for the pagans. Like, we've, we're more advanced now in our Christianity, right? But the reality is we're simply talking about what do you give yourself to in your time, in your energy, in your money, because it, it, it's, a, it's about a giving. It's about a direction of our desire and our hope to please and an expectation of return. 
Are you an idolater? What's in our hearts? The key now to, to understanding change will be making this connection between my sinning, the bad thing that I did this week, and then connecting that to what was I thinking or wanting in that moment. Have you ever heard an apology that was like this? Man, I, I'm really sorry. I don't know what I was thinking. It's not wrong. <laughs> they should figure out what they were thinking in that moment. If you ever hear someone say that, just say, you know what? A good counselor would follow up on that by asking, yeah, what were you thinking? Because it clearly happened. It clearly came out of you. And Jesus said, that's what's in the heart. So figure out what the heart was thinking and wanting in that moment. There's that white taproot of the dandelion to pull out. And so, yes, we would say it's unfortunate we had to have this whole incident and the apology. But was it? <laughs> because now kind of back to the beginning, okay, that right there, that sin mess can be met with God's grace. And it's going to look like identifying what went wrong so that we can weed out that root. You may be sorry, and it may be true, you don't know what you were thinking, but explore that. Figure it out, because the Bible calls us to attention to our hearts. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. It's proverbial, it's short, it's sweet. But the reality of the Proverbs is that they are wisdom, and the rest of Scripture unfolds that wisdom for us. And so keep your heart is where the assignment is this week. I mean, you've you got to study. You've got to figure it out. You've got to figure out what's making that heart tick this week. You've got to figure out why you exploded in anger. What was your heart wanting there? This is the path to change. It's not just do better, though some commands, even in Scripture, come across that way. It's because they're built on a foundation of understanding change. The Bible can say, stop doing that. Put that off and put this on because it's rooted in, in the whole counsel of God, which is your heart is being revealed in those moments. So ask God, as the psalmist did, to reveal what's in your heart. And then don't make excuses for it. Don't shy away from it. Uh, deal with it in the grace and the mercy that God gives us. You may be sorry for your mistakes this week, but if you find yourself saying, I don't know what I was thinking, uh, find an answer. All right? Heavenly Father, we're grateful that your word does lead us to answers, answers about stubborn sin, even stubborn sin that we would call addictive. And yet we realize there is no addiction that is stronger than the power of the gospel and the righteousness of Christ worked in us by the Holy Spirit for true change. And so give us hope this morning for whatever our besetting sin is, for whatever the failure of this past week was, uh, we know there is hope for change, but it will come through humility and honesty about what's in our hearts. Would you, by your word, continue to encourage us this morning uh, to, to fill our hearts with Christ, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ so that we make no more provision for the flesh?
We long for that kind of victory this week. Steer us down that path by your grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.